welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars podcast, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities and others in the car industry. I'm Randy Cardoon. Usually, here on Talking About Cars, I've been sharing interviews with the aforementioned celebrities and car personalities. But this time, it really is about everybody has a car story. Gary and Denise Servini lived in the Malibu area that was recently threatened in the Woolsey fire in 2018. Gary, as you will hear, was a stunt coordinator in the movies and TV. He and his wife loved to collect classic cars. In fact, they had 71 cars stored on their property when the Woolsey fire began, and all 71 basically burned up. Bob Beck of the Great American Auto Scene, or GAS, G-A-A-S, joined me in their Thousand Oaks area home where they were renting while they sorted out insurance issues and plans to rebuild on that Malibu property. Before we talked about the fire, though, we talked about where their love of cars began. I can't even remember when I wasn't, uh, which was kind of interesting. My father's idea of the perfect car was the least expensive car to get from A to B. Uh, my idea was the fanciest car there was. I can remember uh, I could tell you every single car coming down the street by my make, model, and year, and it was just fascinated my father no end. Now he could tell you about airplanes, but you know cars it was just get from A to B. What was your dad's first car that you remember? The first car I remember him having was a '36 Chevy uh, coupe. I can remember riding on the rear shelf. So it was a business group type? Yes. Yeah, just a, a bench seat up front and a large shelf in the back that had, as I remember, a big storage area under it that I used to ride on the shelf. So you grew up in Los Angeles then. Yes. And you kind of got lifted into the whole car thing. You grew up among everything here. Did you move away or have you lived in Los Angeles pretty no, much all your been life? In, uh, I spent three months one summer in Florida. Other than that, I've lived in California our whole life. So you, you're part of the cruising scene then? Yes. When it was just really beginning and growing. Yeah, we spent uh, with our car club uh, every Wednesday night. Uh, it was just the guys on Van Nuys Boulevard. Saturday night was date night on Van Nuys Boulevard, or sometimes we'd, we'd uh, run over to the Ritzy place and go to Bob's and Toluca Lake or Glendale, uh, and then down to the beach every other day. What was your first car? My first car I bought when I was 15. It was a, a 51 Henry J. Bought it for $45. Had to hide it at my best friend's grandmother's house so my dad wouldn't know about it. So I couldn't admit to it until I was 16. When I was 16, I wanted a 55, six or seven Chevy. Couldn't afford them. All I had was $500. So I ended up with a 58 Impala. Wow, and now those things are, are amazing cars. They are now. I actually hated it at the time. It was this big brick, but uh, it, it made me quite a bit of money uh, racing the the rich kids uh, from my wife's school because uh, <laughs> their parents were all buying them the Mustangs with the 289s and the four-speeds. And, of course, when they'd come up alongside me, they'd say, well, what do you got in there? And say, they wanted to know it was a 348. And I said, no, it's a small block. You know, it's a 283. Now, of course, it was a 283 bored out to 301 with Hillborn short stacks on <laughs> of it. Of course it was, yes. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, $5 a race back in those days. And uh, I only lost one race, and it's because the rear end blew up on me against a Mustang. I could always beat them. So five bucks when gas was 23 cents a gallon and you got two-cent coupon you put in a little book. Five bucks. Blue chip or S&H? S&H Green. Which now, was these it? were actually the little gas station in the neighborhood, San Fernando uh, Road. 
uh, right across the railroad tracks, it was a cheapy gas station. So 28 cents most of the time, but then you got a two cent stamp, unless they had a gas war. And you put them in a book, and when the book had $2 in it, then you can turn it in at the gas station and, and get you nearly 10 gallons. Of okay, gas. okay. I want people to just let sink in what he just said. Gas war, 28 cents a gallon. And that was a thing back then. And oh, yeah. that was premium, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. That, yeah, was yeah, course, yeah. that was 100 octane gas. Yeah, was 100 octane gas? 98 to 100, depending on you know what station. But yeah, that was, a, that was the good stuff in those days. All right, you talked about being part of a car club, and obviously that was a big thing back in those days, and still is kind of. What club did you belong to? It was the Deacons. Okay. Uh, they were out of Lat uh, Latuna Canyon uh, in Sun Valley. Uh, most of the guys went to either uh, Poly or Verdugo high schools. And you went to? I went to Poly High. I see. And Diane, your wife, you went to what high school? North Hollywood High. North Hollywood High. Okay. How did you guys meet? We met because I was going to Cal State Northridge, and they said, you should go back to Valley College and take a re refresher math class. And I was there for about three weeks and met him like the first night. Then I dropped out of the class and went back to school. <laughs> now, we've talked to Gary about all his cars to start things off. Were you a car person? Not really, as a horse person. Uh, my first car I got out of high school is a 65 Mustang. That's the only car that I really wanted. So I got a used one, which we got rid of after we got married because it kept falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> now I wish so, I had it back. Sold that car for $500 and felt bad that I'd taken advantage of the guy I sold it to. <laughs> Boy, was I stupid. <laughs> so you guys got married. What was the family car at that time? It was a 65 Mustang, and I don't remember what I she had. A had. 60, I had a uh, 66 Caprice. Mm -hmm. So years gone by, you had a family. You do what for a living? I've had a lot of different jobs. Uh, from the time I was in junior high, all I wanted to do was, was be an airline pilot. I got my pilot's license, my private at 16, uh, instrument at 16, commercial at 17. But once I got into flying corporate and flying there, they found out that being a pilot in that sense was like being a glorified bus driver. You went from A to B on somebody else's schedule. You couldn't yeah. do a roll or a loop without, you know, disturbing the passengers. I can't imagine why you thought that. Yeah. What, what was your first indication of that? <laughs> but uh, at different times, I worked my way through high school and college as a machinist. Uh, I raced exhibition vehicles, jet-powered vehicles with the NHRA. Uh, I, for a short time, was an L.A. County sheriff. But I spent most of my career as a stunt coordinator and second unit director. Some movies that you were doing that we may know. Probably none of them because if you have a good you have a, if you have a good script and you have a good actor and you have a good director, you don't need stunts. So stunts are for basically okay, less, then, lesser movies. But some of the names, the, the first two Batman movies, uh, the. Uh, Night Crossing, which was the true story of the two East German families escaped from East Germany. We made all the flying equipment for that, took it all to Europe and spent I was six just going to mention the car Europe. chases, and that must have been incredible, but there were none. Not, no, not, in, no. well, there actually was a car chase in that with a, uh, an old, uh, East Block car, I can't remember the name, it was a stick shift, had about Trabant. 12, I don't remember, about 12 horsepower. POS? The, what was that? The yeah. funniest thing yeah. was uh, John Hurt was the lead actor, 
and he had to drive it. And uh, the night that it came time for him to be doing this driving in this car where he was running away from the uh, Gestapo people, uh, he mentioned the, that morning to me uh, that uh, because he grew up in London, uh, not only did he not have a driver's license, but he'd never driven a car. <laughs> so now, seriously, seriously. So we now had 12 hours to try to teach not only for him to drive, but to drive a stick in this East German car that was barely holding together, and it wasn't very good to begin with. But somehow we got him to the point that he could do it. We just did most of it on downhill sections of the set as opposed to any uphill. You were interested in cars always. You got interested in cars after you got married, Diane. What was the first car you influenced the buy? Oh, my, that's pretty good. Um, Model A. Yeah, my Model A, that's true. I wanted a Model A. Okay, it was stock, hot rod? Yeah, it was stock. Okay. It was. Coupe, sedan? Sedan. Why a Model A? I don't remember. Why. <laughs> there had to be a good reason at the time. I had to say. There had to. I guess I just liked them and the way they sounded. Then I realized it didn't go very fast, wouldn't keep up with traffic, so it was one of the cars that we sold. I see. Okay. All right. So about that time, when did you start collecting the cars? Well, uh, basically, we should mention that of our car collection, about one third of them were Diane's cars. These are ones that she picked herself, that she drove herself, or raced herself. So. Uh, I knew early on that if you wanted to have a happy marriage and you wanted to do what you wanted to do, that you had to have the wife in on it. Because when we first got married, the first thing I did was get her flying lessons and get her, her pilot's license. Now, I didn't want to instruct her because I knew that would be an instant divorce. <laughs> but because I once tried to teach her to drive a stick, and then we won't get into that. My okay, father yeah. had to finish it and to save me from having a divorce. But uh, at any rate, the first car we bought was a uh, original steel uh, 23 uh, hot rod. And uh, that was about a year and a half or so after we were married. So about 71, 71 and a half. When did you start hanging on to the cars? We still have that car. Oh, okay. Well, tell us a little uh, about that. You say it's a hot rod 23, a T? Yeah, it was a T. Yeah, I'll buy it, okay. Yeah, you know, the typical Chevy 283 with a high riser, two fours, solid rear end, which you set right on top of. So the yeah. ride was absolutely horrible. But the interesting thing about the car and why I bought it, it was built by a guy in Oregon. I think it was Spring Home, but I'm not sure. He built them in the winter when he wasn't working. And all the frame and the body inside and outside was beautifully hand-striped with little roses. I mean, the he was an artist. And uh, he hand-tooled the leather cover over the fuel tank. I mean, the guy's a real artist. And the interesting thing is to find out what he did the rest of the year. He was a frigging lumberjack. <laughs> he cut down trees, you know, a very manly-type job. But yet in the winter, he would build a car. He had a sensitive side. Yes, he did. And he was, well, he was a talented artist, you know. So. Diane, so when did you finally come to the conclusion that, you know, we can start collecting cars that I want instead of just everything he wants. I don't know. We kind of collaborated on the cars, and, and I would kind of push if I wanted one. Mm -hmm. So uh, my Viper was a big one. I really, really wanted that. And he went along with it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say eventually. Uh, I really wanted to make sure that she liked them. Otherwise, you know, I would get cut off real quick. I can from, see it, yeah. From buying that many cars, so well, basically any car she wanted, I would buy for. 
At its peak, how many cars did you have in the collection? At the time of the fire uh, at the house, we lost 71 uh, cars and motorcycles, collector ones, plus one personal car and a fire truck and a bucket truck. Uh, 71. We had about 10 or so lesser cars that were either at, at museums or at our vacation home. Way too many. We'll never have that many again. Let's talk about some of the cars before we start getting into the what happened and, and the fires and all that. You want to see some of their cars. I believe Hot Rod Magazine did a spread pretty much. They had like 101 pictures, certainly not 101 cars, but they had a lot of pictures of the cars you had. I just jotted down some of them. Um, some of the more unusual ones, for example, and I'd love to know the story about some of these. For example, that Studebaker that looks like a Ranchero. Or a, or a El Camino. It was a truck, a yeah. car truck. Yeah, that what? was that was called the cart hauler, and it does have an interesting uh, backstory. Uh, back in the early days of hot rod shows or car shows, you uh, there were none of the booths that sold, you know, whatevers. Uh, they were strictly car shows. So this gentleman who had started Dart Cart when go kart mm -hmm. racing first started, he wanted to display his carts at the Grand National Roadster Show and a few of the other shows. Right. And uh, he was told, no, we, we will not allow anything to be there commercially. It's strictly cars. So he went to, I can't remember the name of the builder right now, but he had that car custom made, put one of his go-karts in it, twin engine go-kart, and named it the cart hauler. That way he could get it into the shows, hand out his little business cards for the go-karting, uh, but the car turned out to be a very famous car. It won numerous shows and, and became an extremely well-known car. Uh, kind of makes you wonder if uh, that's Studebaker actually made one of those. Would they still be here today? I, I don't know. I've always liked Studebaker cars, but, you know, I've always liked the oddball cars. Uh, but uh, uh, it was a complete custom-made car. What was the front half? What was the Studebaker portion? Well, the whole car was Studebaker parts, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, the front of the car, I can't tell you the year, but uh, it was, I think they called them Starlight Coupes, but it, it was a standard you know, Studebaker slope nose front end. say something like mid-50s, early 50s, something like that? Yeah, it would have been later 50s, I think, uh, mid-50s mid or so. Uh, the rear window was actually another windshield flipped over, uh, and then they just literally fabricated the back. The... Uh, tailgate itself was a cut-down tailgate from Studebaker station wagon. Uh, and the, uh, the go-kart was kind of interesting, too. It had West Bend lawnmower engines on it. They were uh, five horsepower originally when they were on your lawnmower. Uh, these engines were converted to run on glow fuel, model airplane fuel, which is basically nitromethane. So these engines made 45 horsepower each from five, wow. uh, which meant that this go-kart that couldn't have weighed more than 200 pounds had 90 horsepower in the back, and then they'd put 10 and 12-year-old kids in them, complete, complete insanity. And of course, apparently the engines would last about a weekend, and then they'd have to be rebuilt. But to be that 10 or 12-year-old kid, how fun yeah. would that been? Yeah. Wow. And, and you were a bit of a Mopar guy. Yeah, I've always liked Hemi's, and, and like I say, I've always liked you know the oddball cars, so uh, I leaned to those. I noticed among them you had uh, a lot of um, 
almost like NHRA dragsters, like an altered uh, 66 start that I guess Bill Golden of uh, Little Red Wagon fame once owned? Well, actually, the 63 was his car. Uh, It's one of, unfortunately, it was one of the five surviving of the original 10 factory-built lightweight cars where they acid-dipped the bodies. They had Corian super-thin glass. The entire front ends, everything, hood bumpers, bumper bolts, all aluminum, Intake mag folds were magnesium. That was a 440 wedge. And uh, that was the NHRA national championship car that Bill Golden won the championship. We'd restored the outside of it and the drivetrain, but the interior was as he raced it. It had the original seat, the original Rolls bar. Uh, all those cars came, oddly enough, a cream exterior color with an ugly green interior, but this still had the door panels. The headliner were still the green of course, there was no rear seat and all that. And there was, a, and it was yellow. You painted it yellow. Well, that was his original color. Oh, it okay. was always yellow. Okay. In fact, I used to ride my bicycle. Bill Golan uh, lived in in Sun Valley and worked on that car. I used to ride my bicycle down and watch him work on it, which is why I wanted that car, and I bought it out of New Jersey. Now the Charger, sixty six, sixty seven. Yeah. What's the story behind that? That was a sixty six Charger. When I graduated high school in sixty six, the only car I wanted to own was a 66 Charger. I love that full center console. I love the fastback. And of course, I wanted a Hemi. Uh, They were $3,600. And uh, I think I had like $1,600. So I never had one. So decades later, my wife bought that car for my birthday. You are the greatest wife ever. Wow. No, okay, give her the mic. So what, what was the story behind that? Well, he wanted it, so I figured he deserved it. The other other one I bought for him was an Avanti, which I hated because I thought it was a real ugly car. But he really wanted that too, so I thought I'd be a good wife. Is it very nice? So the actual um, car itself, how, where did you find it? How did I don't how? remember. He probably found it. Oh, you played the. Oh, played I the, like yeah. that. <laughs> I wish I could get that card. And yeah. then you dropped a hint off to your wife. Smart man. Yeah, it, pr- pretty much. Uh, over the years, she's uh, actually, we've had the two ugliest cars in the world, according to my wife. The Avanti used to be the ugliest. Uh, the one we had was James Kahn's original car. Yeah. And uh, it was you know, in a lot of shit. In fact, when we bought it, it had 14, 1,400 miles on it. Wow. Uh, but uh, that was the ugliest one until I found a car I could not live without, which was a Hudson Italia. Oh, uh, yeah. It uh, was an all-aluminum uh, built-by-turn body on a jet chassis, uh, and all of them had the original flathead jet engine in them, except for Hudson one. Hudson Jet, just, yeah, so Hudson the, just jet. to make sure, yeah. Uh, except for one. Now, they were going to make a run of 26, and they were basically going to be halo cars, but uh, they went bankrupt after only six was ma- were made, and they were all in shows. Uh, the one we had was the one for the L.A. auto shows. And the bankruptcy court then made all these cars be sold. Well, this one was sent to Hollywood Sports Car, which was a Ferrari importer at the time. And they were told to sell it. Well, they realized their clientele, while they would love the body and the brawny wire wheels and all that, that there's no way they were going to buy a little flathead with, I don't know, 80 horsepower or something. So this was 1965, and the 265 Chevy V8 had just come out. And Hudson had been using the Chevrolet three-speed stick shift transmission, so it was a straight bolt-up. So they, before they sold it, pulled the flathead, put this V8 in it, sold it as a new car. So it was, of the ones, it was the only one with a V8 in it. 
And of course, my wife said that was the ugliest car <laughs> in the world ever. So of course, I parked it right in front of the door coming in the garage and we had a sign-up sheet. And everybody that came in had to write, love it, hate it, love it, hate it. And uh, she took the sheet away when it was running about 95 to one. <laughs> love it, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. 95 to 1, love it. I just want to make sure, you know, I, I've heard rumors. Um, and you've had so many other interesting cars. I think you, you talked about the Hudson Italia. Uh, you had a bathtub Nash. You had, well, wait a minute. I just noticed a T-Bird. 59 60. or 60? 60. Where'd the 60 T-Bird come from? Well, that was, was another interesting one. Uh, I'd had for a, a long time a 63 GT250 Lusso Ferrari. And, uh, you know, I'd bought it for, I don't know, 160000 or so long, long, long time back from uh, a guy that I did a lot of buying and, and selling with, uh, give a little plug out to uh, Bruce Trenery at Fantasy Junction. I'd gone up there to buy a race car, and uh, I saw this car, and it was the prettiest car I'd ever seen. So I had it for a long time. People were always trying to buy it, and I would never sell it. And then uh, finally one, you know, gentleman had sent me a nice letter, and you know, I just wanted to get rid of him. So, you know, I said, now I, I won't sell it for less than a million dollars. At the time, I didn't think it was worth more than about eight fifty. Uh, but the darn guy <laughs> came flew, up with a million bucks. He flew, he flew in from New York. He looked at it for about 10 minutes and uh, he said, OK, I'll make a phone call. If you have somewhere we can go to lunch, the money will be in your bank. So, uh, of course, I, I absolutely was an idiot for having sold it for that because within 18 months they were trading for two million. But at any rate, I had lost a, a beautiful red car and I'd gotten you know, a little over a million dollars for it. So uh, this on, I think it was either bring a trailer or eBay, I don't remember which, uh, in a town very near to us in Simi Valley shows up this candy apple red, my wife's favorite color, 60 T-Bird. And I've always loved the body style on it. At least when I got older, I hated it when I was a kid. But, okay. uh, so at, at any rate, uh, I treated myself to a $20,000 car, considering <laughs> I just brought in a million. All right, you talked a little bit, you alluded a little bit to, you've had race cars and you raced. What did you race? Uh, it was one of those kind of, you know, Walter Mitty things. As a kid, all I could afford to race was drag cars. Uh, but I always wanted to go road racing. So as I got older and had a few extra dollars, uh, we started vintage racing. And uh, I started with Can-Am and early front-engine Indy cars. Uh, then we had A-Sports. Uh, my wife had a P1800 Volvo. Uh, my son raced uh, several open-wheel cars. So we just did it, you know, as fun. And uh, that started, I guess, I was in my 50s. You had a 67 Plymouth Satellite I saw in the pictures. Was that more equipped for NASCAR or was that more equipped for NHRA? Yeah, I'm, I'm not really a NASCAR fan. A lot of my friends are, but, you know, they just kind of went around in circles, so that didn't mean too much. But that gets back to my love of Hemis. Uh, that car had a very unusual one-time-only Hemi in it with a magnesium intake and a single four-barrel. Now, the problem with Hemis with NASCAR, they were great on drag racing because they really needed at least two 650 CFM four-barrels. And uh, NASCAR, of course, would only allow a single four-barrel. So, again, Chrysler, one of the things I liked about them is Ford or General Motors, you know, if they wanted to make a change, it took them about 18 months to two years, took 20 engineers and probably 50 executives to make a decision. Chrysler had six people. 
they made a decision so they could turn on a dime. So they said, okay, fine. You know, if NASCAR only wants us to have the single four barrel, we'll do it. They made this uh, one-off magnesium intake and custom made the largest single four barrel ever made. I think it was 1,640 CFM. Uh, and slapped it on it, and Richard Petty in 1967 won the national championship with one of those cars. Right. Well, this car was uh, owned by one of Petty's friends, uh, who was a country western singer, Marty Robbins, who I never knew was, I knew who Marty Robbins was, but I didn't realize he was, was an NASCAR driver. Uh, and he was apparently a pretty good driver, kind of a B-level, but still a, a good hard running. Well, this was his car, and Petty's shop had built it. And uh, they had done, uh, without seeing it, you wouldn't know, but they had done several other unusual changes, shall we say. NASCAR, I guess, was real big at, you know, the rules don't count unless you get caught kind of a group. <laughs> okay. So they had done several other, and that's how we validated the car with some of the telltale pieces were still left on the car. So that's how we knew it was a real car. But I bought it just because of the engine. All right, besides your 58 Chevy, what did you go back and uh, drag race? Uh, well, back when I was in high school, uh, I raced the Henry J, uh, which also ended up with a, a 301 on Hillborns, and that was a primary race car. Then our car club had a Nash, a little Nash Rambler thing with a uh, with a Hemi stuck in the well, actually in the engine bay in the front seat. You drove it from the rear seat, uh, but in, in high school, basically, all I, I ran San Fernando and and you know, a lot of the other local strips. So it was basically the, the Henry J or the club car or occasionally the 58, although I used it mostly on the street. Uh, I've got a soft spot in my head for Henry J's. I've had a 51 myself. Did yours have the trunk lid and the glove box? Yes, mine had the, the trunk lid, so it wasn't sold by Sears. I think all the ones that Sears <laughs> oh, sold. The Allstate. Yeah, the Allstate. <laughs> they, they cheaped it up by not having an opening trunk. Yes, mine did have the trunk and the little heart-shaped rear window. And that, in fact, after I had sold it too, I had kept my car club plaque. They're kind of like the, the bike bike gangs are. You know, you never let your leathers go. Well, we never let our plaques go, so I kept my two original plaques. And when I got the car back decades later, I still had the original plaque, and I put it back in where it had originally been in the side window. You had uh, talking about candy apple red. You had a car that apparently George Barris had done. Well, uh, George Barris did not. Sam Barris, his talented uh. older brother, had built it. It was a Cunningham 40 Ford. Cunningham had built it, won the class at the Grand National Roaster Show in Oakland with it. Then Sam Barris bought it, redid it, uh, rolled the uh, uh, fender wells, put the exhaust through the rear bumperettes, and uh, did a few other changes for it from it and took it back, and it won a second time with Sam's and it had the Barris crest on it and all that, but uh, George never did anything with it. Okay. Well, I, I heard it was a Barris. Yeah, it was just, a Barris car. I just assumed, which is why you should never assume, <laughs> by the way, it gets you into big trouble, I guess. You know, one thing I heard about you guys is, is you loved, oh, and I'll go into this car as well, but you love to drive your cars, including the uh, piece de resistance of your collection, uh, which would have been the Tim's special. Tell us about that and where did that come from? Well, that's an interesting one. I uh, do like to drive all the cars. We kind of, for the most part, figured if you weren't driving or racing them, you probably shouldn't have them. Unfortunately, we never got a chance 
we didn't get a chance to drive the Tim Special too much. Now, when I originally got it, it was going to be a lot of driving. But uh, true odd story, uh, it was a uh, Barrett-Jackson auction at the Peterson Automobile Museum. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the early checkered flag members, I think, in over 84. Uh, so at any rate, we had gone to the auction. Diane was interested in a Ferrari that was coming up later in the day. But I'm known to sometimes help the auction people get things going when the numbers are really low. I'll throw in a couple bids just to get them going. So I was sitting with Bruce Meyer and uh, just talking with him, and I'd thrown out a couple of bids. And, you know, they had an estimate that the car would go. It was in terrible shape, but they figured it, it had been and gone in 60 seconds, too. And they figured, okay, the guy will get 50 grand for it. So, you know, I'd thrown out a bid, and I think the last one I threw out was 16000 or something. It just wasn't moving too well. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> Bruce bumps me and says, they're dropping the hammer on you. So I ended up getting this car with commissions for like seventeen two or something. So it was no money, but it was really, really bad shape. So it was pushed out. Now my son was sitting there and he was thrilled and Diane didn't care because it wasn't a whole lot of money. And I was just going to make a, a hot rod out of it and drive it around Thames. It had this really swoopy body, even though it was pretty mangled. Uh, so at any rate, my father, who had been a, a sheet metal man at locking the skunk works for almost 40 years. So he was the guy that helped us do all the sheet metal. And uh, he lived in the guest house over our shop. He showed up at the auction late, and my son took him out and showed him this car. And, uh, you know, he says, what do you think of this? And he says, Jesus, that's that's beyond too much work. It, it's just too bad. Well, and it's as far as how do you describe it for those who have never seen it before. I mean, it is literally a custom car. I mean, what? how do you describe it for somebody who's never seen it? Well, it was a one-off car designed by Norman Timms. Uh, the body work was done by Emil Dietz, who was one of the uh, early, early, very, very best uh, aluminum sheet metal guys. Uh, both of them worked extensively in the indie uh, field. Uh, Norman Timms designed all the Blue Crown cars, the, the uh, Peck, Keck family cars, he worked for uh, Halibrand, did the Halibrand Shrike car. He actually designed the Halibrand Quick Change rear end. His very first job was with Norman Tucker when he was a junior engineer. So uh, he did all these things way ahead of time. And he designed this car for himself and uh, built it for his own car, had it for a couple of years, and then sold it. And it went through you know several hands. Uh, set out at a place called the Halfway House in Saugus for 30 years in front of the place and children would run across the back of it and hop oh, in and pretend. <laughs> and it ended up out in the desert and then a props man for the studio found it out near Willow Springs, bought it, put it in Gone in 60 Seconds too. Now, if you want to see it, you got to have freeze frame. Uh, it's in twice for about three seconds each time. It's parked beside the Quonset Hut shop that they worked out of. But, you know, so it was hardly in the movie. Were, were you, did you have anything to do with that movie? No. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. Most of the movies I worked on, I was on the aviation side of things, not so much the car side. Um, but at any rate, uh, you know, uh, we got it for almost no money, but my dad didn't think it would be restored. Uh, but, you know, we took it home just to make a fun car out of it. We weren't going to make it really nice. But then I started doing some research, and we said, oh, Jesus, this car is unbelievably important. It's a one-off. We have to do it right. So all of our other cars, we had done it at home. We built our own parts, machined our own parts. We do everything but paint and upholstery. 
This car we worked on for four years and gave up. We could not do it. It was too bad. So we sent it out to Custom Auto in Loveland, Colorado for a one-year finish-up. took them three and a half years to finish it. So seven wow. and a half year in, uh, restoration. Now, I've always asked guys in the business like, you know, your Dave Kindigs and your Carinis and all these other people, uh, how much money does it take to get the result you have, especially Dave Kindig? And you know he spends some serious money in there if you or I going to walk in the door and say, hey, here's a car, fix it for me, and he's going to spend serious money. But he will never say how much he really spends on it. Well, how actually, much neither will I, but I will tell you a funny story. Our uh, son was in college at the time that this car was up at Custom Auto uh, going to a, a private college that was not inexpensive. And uh, my wife uh, was asked at a party one time, you know, how how was this car coming along? And, you know, what was, you know, like, he says, she says, well, it's kind of like my, uh, like I have two kids in college and my son went to the cheap school. (laughs) So let's just say it costs considerably more than my son's, you know, uh, art school uh, uh, design uh, four year uh, bachelor's degree. Do you ever rational try to rationalize the money you spend on fixing your cars? I mean, do you think to yourself, I'm going to get it back if I sell it, or or what's the rationale you use? No, we've never bought. I know a lot of people will buy new cars and put zero miles on them and just wrap them up. You know, and that's fine. It's, it's nice looking at them. I can look at cars and say it's like artwork on the wall. The artwork just stands there. The car you can at least sit in, even if you don't want to put miles on it. But I don't think we've ever bought a car with the idea of we bought a couple of motorcycles with that idea, but never a car with the idea that we're going to buy it and make money on the future. Any car we made money on was just a fluke. And some cars I thought that would go up in value, like Avantis, I thought they would be. Avantis never went frigging anywhere. Big swing and a miss. Okay. Yeah, it just, yeah. But I didn't buy it for that reason. I bought the Avanti because I saw one when I was in high school, a opposing mm-hmm. uh, coach. Uh, had one and i thought that was just a great car so it we bought them only because we loved them it had nothing to do with making See, i'm money. going through that right now uh, yeah. i know yeah, we I'm, talked, about, we talked about this about right now uh, i can't really talk about it right now on oh. because if the guy's listening and sells it then it doesn't really matter i'll explain it to you off air okay yeah. well that we'll discuss this so all right let's fast forward uh you guys were living where in malibu when the fires hit well, actually, our insurance company wouldn't let us say at the time, but uh, we were on Mulholland Highway, halfway between Canaan and Westlake, uh, right above Ronnie Semler's place on a, a little higher hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had, I guess I would imagine you built a facility to house all your vehicles there. How big was it? Uh, well, the garage space and shop space was about 12,500 square feet. Mm-hmm. And you got all 70 in there? Yeah, there, like I say there were uh, 71 cars and motorcycles, about 50-50 mm-hmm. on the split, plus my wife's daily driver and, and two commercial vehicles. So what happened when the fire started? We get that part of the story next on the Talking About Cars podcast. Back again on the Talking About Cars podcast with Gary and Denise Servany as we talked about the Woolsey fire and the effect it had on their 71 vehicle, car, and motorcycle collection. We talked about that fire and how they first heard that it was going on. There's fires that go through Mulholland because I lived out there for a while. I lived in Agora and Calabasas and through that area. And we'd get a fire every five years, something like that. So, so did you ever worry about something like that getting close to you? 
Well, actually, we lived there just under 29 years. This was the fifth fire uh, that we had been through. On the uh, first four fires, we had a, a county fire truck sitting in the driveway in front of the guest house. We'd feed them coffee and donuts, the rare craft overhead, and the fires never got directly to us, and we never had any damage. Uh, this one, we were out of town. Uh, the uh, caretaker that lived there, uh, he was there, and uh, he said there was never a fire truck, there was never an airplane, never nothing. And the fire came right through our area. It was 16 days short of 40 years since the last fire in the area. We were cleared back 350 feet. Uh, both our car insurance company and our home insurance company had done inspections of the properties and had come to the conclusion that the, car, the properties were completely fireproof and were unburnable. Turned out not to be the case. But what we understand is the embers, we had concrete tile roofs. The embers were blown up underneath the concrete tiles and got on the uh, felt paper, which is an oil base, felt with oil base, and that lit up and then it got to the plywood. But the guys were trapped on the property for uh, an hour or so. The first thing that lit up was a woodworking shop, which was in a converted horse barn, and the flames were laying over the driveway to the point they couldn't drive out. So they stayed in the guest house and they said they could see little spot fires burning through the shingles a dozen or more on the main structure and a half a dozen on the guest house and they could hear crackling even though they had no smoke or anything inside. So the replacement house is going to be all concrete, steel, and glass with a bonded metal roof. We will make a fortress that cannot burn next time, but we are rebuilding. When did you find out, Diane, that, that the fire had kind of gotten a little too close? Um, 3.30 in the morning, we were in Missouri. My daughter-in-law called, and they're in Thousand Oaks. said, there's a really big fire out here. We're in an evacuation zone. I'll call you back. And she called me back about a half an hour later and said they were leaving. It was mandatory. We're going to go to her brother's house in Santa Clarita. And I went, well, okay, that's Thousand Oaks. That's a long way from us. And so then I got up. I couldn't sleep, and I got the laptop going, and... And I uh, finally found a live feed from Channel 2, started watching that. And then it was in Oak Park, and I'm well, that's still a long way from us. And then it was over closer to Chesbro, and they were saying, we hope it doesn't jump the, oh, it jumped the 101 freeway. And I went, okay, well, that's not good. And then it was at Pepperdine. And I went, okay, that's a pretty straight line. That's a long way south of us. And that's usually how and they that's go. that's usually how it went. And then all of a sudden, a couple hours later, I think I heard something about it being at the tunnel on Mulholland. And I went, tunnel, Mulholland, hmm. And then we got a call from our tenant who said, we're at the bottom of the hill and your house is on fire. So, I mean, uh, it was like that quick. And we went, oh, that's, you know, so it was kind of a shock. We left the next morning to come home. Not that we could do anything at that point. But. You said you had other cars uh, stored other places? Uh, yeah, we had, uh, you know, uh, Diane's uh, favorite Rolls-Royce, uh, fortunately, was at a friend of ours museum, so it's safe. And I had uh, one aircraft engine-powered race car that I own with uh, my racing partner that uh, was also at that same warehouse. And then we had a couple lesser cars at the vacation home at Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, and a couple of cars in the warehouse in Sun Valley, but nothing of any consequence other than her one Rolls-Royce. Mm -hmm. Gary, I'd like to know really what was going through your mind while Diane was on the phone hearing about all this and then, you know, hearing the fire was over there by the tunnel and the whole thing. You'd been through this. 
you had not had any problems. The insurance company had said, oh, you're fine, don't worry about it. Well, once the fire got to Pepperdine, I said, well, two of the four previous fires, we'd gone right that same track, went right to Pepperdine. They, you know, unfortunately on those, it turned uh, towards Santa Monica, burned out a lot of houses in, in the main part of Malibu along the Strand and, and near the pier. Uh, but this time it turned and actually came against a 60 mile an hour Santa Ana. And the interesting thing is the fire that hit our house came from the ocean side, not the valley side, like all the other fires had. And uh, the guys said when it hit the chaparral at the 350 feet down the hill, that the flames and embers in seconds shot up that hill, went over the guest house, hit the converted barn. Now, because it was full of lumber, that we always knew could burn. But that was 100 yards from the guest house and 150 or 200 yards from the main structure. So we never worried about it. And it didn't cause a problem for those structures, as it turned out. But uh, the fire came from that way. And then it seemed to almost stall with the Santa Ana's because we're right on a ridge top. So it was a combination of this backfire coming from the ocean somehow. No one's ever seen that before. And then the Santa Ana's coming from the valley. And it just sat there on the ridge and burnt. But oddly enough, the house next door to us, which is very similar construction, they lost shrubbery and whatnot, and the house was a little singed, but it did not burn. So it was just, I think, the way the terrain was and just one of those fluke things. A lot of people worry about having to report things to insurance companies when they have one or two cars. How is it working with the insurance companies now? That's something I'm sure a lot of people are worried well, about. Well, I'll have to give a little plug to Haggerty. They are probably the best insurance company and the nicest people I have ever met. Uh, you know, I've been with them for decades. I've never had a single claim of any kind. Uh, just enjoyed all the people when we do tours in Europe. I mean, they're standing at borders going to Eastern Europe with your insurance policy. So, I mean, they're just a phenomenal. But I called them up and had to tell them that I think 35 or so cars of the, of the ones on the list had been lost and some of the more expensive ones. And uh, they just immediately started handling everything. We're just saying they, they so sorry, never, never a complaint. And uh, um, they were all stated value cars. So they actually had an appraiser assigned a week and a half before the, ins the insurance company, which is also very good uh, travelers that we had on the main structures, before they had one, they got a specialist that knew uh, classic cars and race cars uh, out of uh, Beverly Hills. Uh, she showed up, my son's a detective for the county sheriff's department, so even though the place was closed, he could hold up his badge and we go by. She was up there climbing into this absolute mess where you, there's so much debris on top, you could hardly tell what car was what, but we'd done a schematic of where things were parked. We'd move a few things. My son would stand there. This is number 12, you know, uh, whatever that car was. Uh, finished that up. She had a report done in two or three days, and Haggerty was ready to write me the check for the full amount. Wow. So you move on, and you rebuild. And not only rebuild the structure, as you already said you were going to do, but you're already working on replacing the cars. Uh, yes. Uh, actually, yesterday we bought the uh, first replacement car. I replaced my wife's uh, Viper. Good thinking. Yeah, very, very good. Smart thinking. man. Good move. good move. Yeah. And and I think she I think she got a slight upgrade. You know, she had a, a ninety seven 
you know, Viper Blue with the white stripe, and we just uh, replaced it with a 2017 white with blue stripe, reverse colors, uh, Viper ACR with the full aero package and, and everything. I just bought it out of Chicago, and it'll be sh I paid for it today, and it'll be shipped out uh, shortly. Top five cars you would like to refurbish the collection with? Uh, cars that weren't in the collection? Or any cars. I mean, no. do you want to try no. and replace the cars, or do you want to go for something the, else? The car that will be rebuilt from the collection that we're going to have craned out, we've already dug it loose, uh, was a uh, Bonneville car. It was a P38 drop tank car that uh, when my son was in high school, my son and my father and I did the entire car from an old old wreck from the from the 40s. We built it as a family project. So the car has no you know, no real value. I think it was insured for 35 grand. Right. It'll cost us 70 to redo it, but it will be redone. Uh, the Norman Tim special will be redone. Uh, we're not sure whether we'll do it ourselves or whether you know, there have been several people that have approached us about wanting to buy the chassis. Still, the body's completely gone, but the chassis there and the drivetrain. Uh, the one car that I told my wife that I've never owned that I really lust after and I will probably buy because we will never have this many cars. So we'll have you know, I want a Cunningham C3. Ooh. And I've already told... Uh, uh, RM and Gooding that uh, if they come across one, I'm a serious buyer for Cunningham C3. Wasn't there one of those at uh, SEMA last year? The last, not last, last year, but the year before that? Cunningham, I'll have to show you a picture. I may have one. Go ahead. And what else? Well, we'll buy another. Uh, we had three Rolls-Royce Silver Ghosts. We love the uh, touring in those cars, uh, in U.S., Canada, Europe. And so we've uh, got our eye on uh, one that uh, will be in Arizona. I've already registered to bid. I won't be able to be there, but I'm going to uh, do phone bids on one that's at RM. And uh, I'm hoping their estimates are correct because I'm willing to pay above their estimate. <laughs> I have a feeling, though, that their estimates are on the low side, but, you know, time will tell. We're actually going to go look and drive the car on Tuesday. It's a car here from Southern California down near San Diego. If you could turn the clock back or if you could somehow get a car you once owned back, what car would you have selected? The Henry J. Uh, the Henry J I had sold when I got out of high school. I got it back about five years ago. Uh, maybe, the Henry maybe J the, that you had. Yeah, that's, that's an How interesting... How did you track that down? The, that was very interesting. My son, you know, is really enamored. He's a real car guy and... and uh, you know, he really wanted me to redo one of my high school cars. Well, I never really liked the 58 to begin with. And the idea of chopping up a good 58 and putting a straight front axle in it and, and you know, greatest in the rear wheel wells, that just didn't seem to make sense. So I told him we'll do a Henry J. So I looked on eBay, one of my favorite places, and I bought a Henry J to be a good starter. And uh, you know, I, I can't believe somebody on eBay actually lied about the condition of a car and what. It, I, I can't believe that. Shocking! Happened. Can't believe that. <laughs> so this car shows up, and it, you know, it's a real piece of crap. Uh, and I, it's what I get for not going and looking, but it wasn't that expensive. So I said, "Well, okay, we'll we'll get around to it." 
and uh, it sat there for a couple of months. And uh, then another one shows up on eBay up in, I think it was Wisconsin or somewhere up there. And I said, boy, this one's done. The, the top chop is just about right. And, uh, you know, it had the wrong engine. It had a Ford instead of a Chevy. But, you know, it really looked like it was a lot closer to what I had. And I said, this is probably going to be a better one. And it wasn't a whole lot of money. So I bought it. It came down. And, yeah, it was a lot better. So I traded off the other car quickly. And uh, first thing we do when we get any car is we put it on the lift in the shop. And, you know, the tops can always look good, but the gremlins are always on the bottom side. So I'm going through it. And as I get near the rear end and the rear uh, extra cross members that, it, you know, that you have to weld in the frames to take the bigger engines, uh, there's a little dust and a little, and you know, I kind of reached up and I wiped it off a, a little bit on both the rear end and the frame rails and stamped into them with an old metal stamp said GC Deacons. Well, my initials are GC and Deacons. And back in the day, one of the reasons you had car clubs was if you had, if you were a street guy and you had your car stolen or parts stolen, mm -hmm. cops wouldn't even take a report. You know, it's not like it is today. They just hated you. So you had a car club is if your parts were stolen, the car club went out and found them and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you got your parts back, shall we say. Yep. So at any rate, this thing's stamped up and I, you know, this cannot be. So I quickly get on the phone, call the guy in Wisconsin, say, where did you get the car? What's the story? And he says, well, I bought it from this guy in Oregon, uh, you know, a couple years ago. Uh, and it was a street car at that time. You know, I had headlights and taillights and that. And uh, he says, uh, I said, do you happen to have that man's information? And he said, yeah, I do. And uh, so he gave me that information. I said, you know, by the way, why did you decide to sell it? And he says, oh, my wife and daughter said it was ugly and that, and that I was too old and I should go back and play golf. So I asked him how old he was and he told me and he's five years younger than I am. So I didn't, I didn't tell him that. But at any rate, to continue on, I call the guy in Oregon. Uh, he had converted the car to a street car so he could sell it just before. He had used it as a drag race car for 30 some odd years or maybe even more than that. And I, but he wasn't the guy I had sold. I sold the car to a kid at, at San Fernando Drag Strip. And uh, so I said, well, who did you get it from? Do you happen to remember? And he says, yeah, actually I do. Uh, and he told me, and it was the kid I had sold the car to. So the Incredible. car had been a drag car almost all its life, and it only had three people after me, and I got it on a fluke. Now, was that one of the cars you still had when the fire hit? Yeah, it, it's burnt. It's it's not only burnt but crushed. The garage, unfortunately, had a full another story of structures above it, plus all these concrete tiles. And where they were the old ones that were real concrete, not the new lightweight concrete, so they're very heavy. So it's it's absolutely crushed beyond belief. We may pull the chest, but it's just too big a heartbreak. To my son's already taken part of the grill out of it, and he's going to put it on his hot rod somewhere. Um, so looking back. Was there anything that could have been done to avoid it? You did everything you could at the house, which is what you had talked about. But as far as, I mean, who knew that neighbors' grass would be catching fire and coming up to your area? Who knew? I mean, is there anything that could be learned from this? It appears, but we can't know for sure, that if we'd had one county fire truck there, it would have saved the whole property. Uh, friends of ours in Bell Canyon who had the same exact roof uh, and he had a swimming pool and a pump and uh, 
he was having the same problem. These embers were being blown under, and he was trying to put them out with a hose from the ground, and he wasn't getting anywhere. But a fire truck showed up at his house. The firemen jumped on the roof, just took their little axes, and just popped the shingles loose and shot some water underneath and put out a half a dozen fires on his house and saved the whole house. So if I'd have been there because I had my own fire truck, maybe I could have done it, although at my age I'm not all that spry, and we're talking about almost 20,000 square feet of roofs, so it would have been a little difficult. But one fire truck, I think, would have saved the property. So bottom line, never leave your house and always have a fire truck on hand. You know, it's really a sad thing to say, but uh, and it is an unsafe thing to say, so I don't necessarily promote it. But I have been told by my firemen that, that we know that, uh, yes, they want you to leave. But if you're an idiot and you stay, generally they will come and protect your property to save your stupid ass. So, so in short, you should, you should, if you really want to protect your car and you're foolish, you should probably stay home. If you're an intelligent person, you should probably leave. He said he could be dead now because he wouldn't have left. There were dead rabbits on the, on the driveway, Ugh. just overcome. So, I mean, it's possible there was, there would have been so much smoke and heat that it may not have turned out, but we don't know. We'll never know that, so. Most of my friends basically do say they know that I'm a big enough idiot, and they're probably right, that I would have stayed with my fire truck. And because these rabbits and animals had died on the driveway, they were not burnt. They had died from smoke inhalation, and they had gotten on the driveway to get away from, from the burning stuff. That, uh, yeah, it might have killed me. So I may be very lucky that I was 1,800 miles away. And you said you had your own fire truck. What kind of fire truck? That was an old Howl fire truck that but I bought. But it worked. Oh, yeah, I bought it from, for, for this specific reason. It wasn't a collector vehicle. I bought it for like three grand from a fire department right up on the Oregon-California border and, and drove it home. And we had enough fire hose that we could run two-and-a-half-inch lines from the fire plug in front of the house up to the driveway. And then we had splitters to run one-and-a-half to the rest of the property. And then the fire truck had 1,200 gallons in it plus a cannon. So I think I could have saved it. Plus but, a cannon yeah. bomb. Well, yeah. a, a water cannon, not yeah, a... Yeah, yeah. Right, no, yeah, yeah, no, of course not. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> you were prepared. Yeah, we you thought were we were. prepared for this, yeah. We if thought we were. Here. And I'll tell you, two insurance companies that thought everything was prepared. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, I have to say, too, for Haggerty, I called him up this morning and... Uh, Told them, well, I, I just bought another car, and you know, I'm really hoping that they wouldn't say, we don't want to talk to you anymore. Yeah. You cost us a lot of money. But no, they, they were, again, very con you know, a lot of condolences for what happened, and, and they immediately insured the car at a very fair price. And mm -hmm. I told them I might get one in, in Arizona in two weeks, and they said, just call us up. It'll, it'll just put it reminded on. me I need to uh, pay my Haggerty bill. Yeah, well, they're getting the money back. They're going to get it back slowly, slowly but right. they'll get it back, yeah. Exactly. Stunt coordinator Gary Servany and his wife, Denise. Thanks for listening. Please share our show on social media. Subscribe. It's absolutely free. Leave a comment, and if you're on iTunes, rate us and review us. Thank you in advance for helping our podcast grow. Our website is TalkingAboutCars.net. You can follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.